I was listening to an interview with Jeffrey Curry. You brought up a really interesting point. You know, in 2000, you sold your Microsoft and you bought commodities. In 2010, you bought Microsoft and sold your commodities. And now it's the 2020s. And you sell Microsoft and you buy commodities again. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pokebelly. So there are a lot of metal stories out there. Again, we're kind of going from almost to Jeffrey Curry's point, but on a news basis, we're kind of going from page 17 to page one. Uh, the FT had this big story, which kind of feels like more, I don't want to call it bluster because it's not, but let me read the headline here. Indonesia considers OPEC-style cartel for battery metals. So you see how important battery metals are becoming here. You know, and we already knew that, but this idea that they're becoming so important that Indonesia is out there considering talking about this idea of making an OPEC of sorts. So pretty interesting. If you read the article, I recommend you go and find it. Let me just read a quote here. I mean, this basically tells you what the country is thinking. Belil Lahadelia, the country's investment minister, said Jakarta was looking at mechanisms similar to those used by OPEC. Quote, I do see the merit of creating OPEC to manage the governance of oil trade to ensure predictability for potential investors and consumers. Indonesia is studying the possibility to form a similar governance structure with regard to the minerals we have, including nickel, cobalt, and manganese. And it says here they are the world's largest nickel producer, generating 38% of global refined supply, according to consultancy CRU. It holds a quarter of the world's reserves of the metal. So again, here we're discussing aluminum last week. Now we're discussing nickel. You know, and remember last week Alcoa wants to ban uh, Russian aluminum and Russian metals. And, you know, it all sounds great for Alcoa if we do that. I just wonder about society at large. I mean, look around you. What's made of aluminum? Look around you. What's made of nickel? Okay. And you really don't need to go far. So are we going to start, you know, so first of all, with the nickel deal, if they start creating an OPEC. I don't see that helping the world's inflation problem. And then if we start banning Russian metals, is that going to solve our inflation problem? To me, it seems like it's ensuring that we have an inflation problem for years to come. Because you're going to have to negotiate to unwind that thing. Okay, like it's not as simple as, oh, we just turn it on and off. You have to convince them once they start distributing it to other people, you're going to have to convince Russia to open that up if it causes a problem for us. So these aren't, you know, small matters. And now the European manufacturers, Norsk Hydro ASA, and it, this is also Bloomberg via mining.com, which operates the largest primary aluminum plant in Europe, is calling for sanctions to be imposed on Russian metals as European producers cut output to cope with surging energy costs. So... Again, we're trying to be as objective as possible. I mean, I don't own any aluminum. I'm not a part of an aluminum company. So I'm just trying to get this as right as I can. From my perspective, it's a little rich for Alcoa to be going out there and saying we need to ban Russian aluminum. I find it slightly more understandable that the Europeans are asking for it because they are literally being put out of business. If you go to the end of that article, it says they have closed two smelters in Norway in response to reduced market demand, and in August said it will close the Slovalko aluminum facility in Slovakia. So they are having to shut things down, Norsk Hydro, in Europe, 
because business is so bad. And basically, oil costs are still very high. Electricity costs are still elevated, although they have come down from my understanding. Yet, they can't compete right now. And now there's all fears of a recession, so demand is going down. So I understand where they're coming from. They're looking out for their company. And you could say the same thing about Alcoa. They're looking out for their company. But if you ban a major supplier of the world's aluminum, the Russian supply of aluminum at the LME, I don't understand how you get your inflation problem under control. To me, this entrenches it. This guarantees inflation. And you might say, oh, look at aluminum prices. They're down 80%. I mean, this is part of the problem. And to me, this is kind of a, are we going to start making policy based on the last six months? Because if we looked in March, it was a completely different story. We also have to look ahead and think, if we start getting growth in the economy, what's going to happen to the price of all of these metals that we are in the process of banning, as well as the oil that Europe is in the process of banning and this, you know, what seems to me to editorialize a half-baked idea of trying to, you know, put a price cap on Russian oil, it just seems like kind of wild what they think they can accomplish. And Russia has made it very, very clear that they will simply stop shipping it to anybody that tries to put a price cap on it. They, Putin has said it repeatedly. So what is going to happen to the price of oil then? And then He's even, get, as always, it's just going to be giving him a pretext to do this. And then all of a sudden he takes off 2 million barrels of oil or however much it's going to be. As Daniel Jurgen was saying yesterday, you know, it's not going to take much to create a quote unquote panic. Okay, that's what Daniel Jurgen was saying, that they could easily without even eliminating what they're putting on the market. Okay, and as far as this aluminum ban. What happened with oil? I mean, this just happened. And what happens? It gets sent to India and then it gets resold to the West at marked up. So good job. And now we're going to do the same thing with aluminum? Anyways, it all seems like, like, what would you call that? Recency bias? It all seems like everything is just, you know, we're going from fire to fire and just trying to get an immediate solution without any sort of long-term thinking and you know, strategic petroleum reserve, and on and on it goes, we are setting ourselves up to be more and more vulnerable is really what's happening here. So it is interesting. We have moved from page 17, proverbially speaking, to page one. Now, just a final sort of point on this. The European consumers of aluminum are very worried. There's actually a whole other side to the story. There's another story here. Before we get into our feature content here, China shows the LME there are still buyers for Russian metal. So this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. And basically they're saying they had a massive oversupply of copper in the LME warehouses and half of it has just been shipped to people who plan to deliver it to Chinese buyers, according to people familiar with the matter. So there are buyers out there. This time it's for copper. And now so there's a couple of more points to this story. So first of all, the consumers of European aluminum spoke out against this action by the LME of this idea of sanctioning Russian metal because they're already getting killed, right? Like it's amazing these places are staying in business with all their extra costs that they've had to shoulder. 
this year and with a you know a kind of a declining european economy with high inflation and now higher interest rates and so german and italian business associations are putting their names to a statement warning that a ban or any government imposed sanctions or tariffs were a quote imminent and vital threat end quote to the european aluminum industry in other words the people that use european aluminum a imminent and vital threat so don't take my word for it take the german and italian business associations so coming up on our feature content uh, we have theo yamayogo ey canada's mining and metal sector leader and i interviewed him as part of the global mining symposium and I found it to be a really interesting interview. Theo really explained the difference between ESG and CSR and what had changed, which I asked him directly. And he had a pretty good answer for it. And he also discussed digital transformation and really what exploration companies can do like today to help improve their business, but also what bigger businesses can do as well. So just an all-round practical guide to running your ESG strategy, as well as your digital transformation strategy. So some very useful, practical information, courtesy of EY Canada's Theo Yamayogo. And finally, to experience more events yourself, simply go to events.northernminer.com to request your investor pass for the Canadian Mining Symposium, which takes place on November 28th and 29th. In London, again, you just go to events.northernminer.com, and it includes speeches by Sean Boyd, Executive Chair of Agnico Eagle, Phil Baker, President and CEO of Hecla Mining, Ira Thomas, President and CEO of Lucera Diamond, who I will be interviewing, and Nadine Miller, VP of Cybersecurity and Operational Technology at GDS Energy and Mining. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, federal government stiffens guidelines on foreign involvement in Canada's critical minerals sector. This is by Blair McBride. From northernminer.com, the federal government immediately plans to significantly tighten the approval process for major transactions by foreign state-owned enterprises in Canada's critical mineral sectors. In a joint news release issued Friday, François-Philippe Champagne, Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, and Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson said that under the updated guidelines for how the Investment Canada Act is applied, the transactions, quote, will only be approved as of likely net benefit on an exceptional basis. If this means what I think it means, we're almost seeing resource nationalism in Canada, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, what do you take from this? Transactions, quote, will only be approved as of likely net benefit on an exceptional basis, end quote, meaning only if these are extraordinarily favorable circumstances for whatever reason, exceptional circumstances, to use their word, will Canada approve a foreign takeover? Wow. 
continuing the quote as well, should a foreign state-owned company participate in these types of transactions, it could constitute reasonable grounds to believe that the investment could be injurious to Canada's national security, regardless of the value of the transaction. So they're basically saying, if I understand this correctly, any transaction regarding critical minerals will be seen as potentially injurious to Canada's national security. That is quite a shift. You know, I think of my dad 20 years ago was making the case that Canada should not be selling its resources for this very reason, for economic and security reasons. 20 years later, the government agrees. So you can read the whole thing on northernminer.com, but that is the meat and potatoes there. Uh, continuing on, U.S. Developing Domestic Uranium Strategy, Energy Secretary. You know, for all of this stuff, I guess it's better late than never. I guess October 27th, 2022, Reuters via mining.com, I guess October 27th, 2022 is better than 2023 and 2024. But again, people have been saying this near two decades. Continuing on. The United States is working on supplying its own uranium for existing and advanced nuclear reactors that could become commercial in the future to reduce dependency on Russia for the fuel. Jennifer Granholm, the U.S. Energy Secretary, told reporters on Wednesday. Now, this is interesting because Jennifer Granholm is not really known saying we need a uranium strategy. Interesting. The United States relies on Russia and its allies, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, for roughly half of the uranium powering its nuclear power plants. The administration of President Joe Biden has banned imports of Russian petroleum over Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, but has not banned its uranium. Biden, in August, signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which contained $700 million for producing a supply of high-assay, low-enriched uranium that many advanced reactors being developed plan to use. In addition, the administration in March invoked the Cold War-era Defense Production Act to support production and processing of critical minerals. So, I mean, really similar to this Canada story up north. I mean, again, it's, it's sort of a better late than never sort of scenario here from my perspective. The United States wants to be able to source its own fuel from ourselves, and that's why we are developing a uranium strategy. Granholm told reporters at an International Atomic Energy Agency conference in Washington. She continues, we'll be working on enhancing that and making sure that we can fuel our own reactors as well as the partners to those who also have those ambitions. So U.S. and Canada getting pretty serious on their resources here, aren't they? Now, kind of dovetailing into our introductory remarks and into these stories, Cameco so this is by Northern Miner senior reporter Henry Lazenby. Canadian uranium major Cameco has narrowed its September quarter loss, citing building momentum in long-term contracting by power utilities amid concern about global energy security and the rising acceptance of nuclear power to reduce carbon emissions. So they're still losing money. Cameco's CEO, Tim Gitzel, told a post-earnings release analyst call it had advanced discussions for about 27 million pounds of long-term uranium business and 7.5 million kilograms of conversion services. And we have a quote from Tim Gitzel from the call. Quote, this quarter we have provided a further glimpse into our pipeline of contracting discussions because it has us pretty optimistic. Pending the new contract's finalization, the total volume of uranium successfully contracted since the beginning of 2022 
is expected to be about 77 million pounds. The total volume of conversion services contracted is expected to be about 14.5 million kilograms of uranium. Quote, our pipeline of contract discussions remains large, and we expect to see more long-term demand to come to the market. We will continue to exercise strategic patience in our contracting activity. And he also said, quote, we recognize that in our business, real value is created by building a long-term contract portfolio that supports the operation of our productive assets, provides exposure to increasing prices, and provides downside protection. And scrolling down a bit, global supplier of choice. However, investors' attention was firmly focused on the recent announcement it had reached a deal to buy U.S.-based Westinghouse Electric Company, which would give it a, quote, pull position in nuclear markets historically served by Russia, company executives said on Thursday. And we have a quote from Cameco CFO Grant Isaac, quote, Westinghouse enjoys the pole position, having the certified and verified ability to produce the VVER fuel, referring to a series of pressurized water reactor designs initially developed in the former Soviet Union. Quote, what we want to do is help provide these Western solutions to those markets looking to turn away from Russia. Gitzel said, quote, that substitute is Westinghouse. They're very active in Ukraine today. There's the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, and many of those Eastern European countries we think are potential business for Westinghouse and quite frankly for Camco as well. The CEO estimates the country controls 39% of enrichment capacity and 14% of the uranium concentrates supply. So they still lost $20 million, it says here. The company booked a $20 million loss for the period ended September 30th, compared with a $72 million loss in the same quarter last year. Camco says this reflects normal quarterly variations in contract deliveries and the effort to ramp up production by 2024. And so it dropped 4% to $32.49, giving it a market cap of $14 billion. This is interesting as well. This is Reuters via mining.com. French lithium mine project unveiled in electric car race. So do you see a trend? Canada. Basically, no foreign takeovers unless there's an exceptional reason, which is a dramatic shift in policy. The US, you know, Jennifer Granholm saying we're starting our nuclear uranium strategy. And now the French want to open a major lithium mine right in the middle of the country. Let's see what it says. French minerals company Emiris unveiled plans on Monday to develop a lithium mine in central France that it said could be a leading contributor in Europe's quest for electric vehicle battery materials. Electric cars such as Renault's Zoe are key to the European Union's strategy to cut emissions, and the bloc is trying to reduce reliance on battery supplies from Asia. This would be one of Europe's largest lithium mining projects, the company said, and enough to supply around 700,000 electric car batteries a year, a sizable chunk of the government's target of 2 million EVs per year produced in France by 2030. So it continues. You see, it's like the G7 has met. And I mean, I keep saying this. It's like mining has gone from page 17 to page one. It sounds like it was a central discussion based on all these headlines, that is what I would start to piece together here is the G7 is going all in on onshoring their mining capacity. And we have a couple of more stories here. Breaking China's grip on rare earths markets is a, quote, pipe dream, according to Australia. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Australia's resource minister said it was a pipe dream that Western countries could soon end their reliance on China for rare earths and critical minerals. Vital for the defense, aerospace, and automotive industries due to the Asian powerhouse existing grip on global markets. Quote, there's a country that has seen this need coming and made the most of it, according to Resource Minister Madeleine King, 
In a Bloomberg News interview, the article continues that won't stop Australia and the U.S. from working together to boost investment in these critical minerals in an attempt to break China's monopoly on international supply chains. It was Cranberra's aim to, quote, make the most of the natural endowment we have of these resources that we can provide an alternative source of them from China. And finally, she said in another interview, I don't think anybody in any country wants to have global supply chains dependent on kind of a single point of failure. It's just smart policy. So again, now Australia, like, are you starting to see a pattern here? Japan looks 6,000 meters under the sea for rare earths to counter China. It's just another headline. Kind of says everything you need to know. That is Bloomberg via mining.com. This was on a different note. Tech Resources hikes costs of QB2 copper project in Chile again. And the cost of this project has gone up. They now think QB2 in Chile will cost between $7.4 and $7.75 billion. This is up from their July guidance of 6.9 to 7 and an earlier estimate of $4.7 billion. So it's now more than $3 billion higher than that earlier estimate. So costs are going up. Also, bait and switch House Committee asks Attorney General to investigate alleged pebble deception. So the apropos named Northern Dynasty, the soap opera that is called the Pebble Copper Gold Project, which we have been tracking near two decades here at the Northern Miner, sounds like lawmakers are not impressed. In releasing their report on Friday, Democratic Representatives Peter DeFazio of Oregon and Grace Napolitano of California announced they sent evidence of false statements to the U.S. Attorney General's office based on the report's findings. The report was leaked to the Associated Press ahead of the publication. The report uses internal company documents and communications to demonstrate, quote, clear-cut deception from Pebble LP in their push to build an open mine in the world's largest salmon habitat at Bristol Bay. And we have a quote from Chair DeFazio, who said, This report exposes in damning detail how Pebble LP tried to use a bait-and-switch sham permitting scheme to sneak an environmentally disastrous pit mine project past Congress, regulators, and the native Alaskans whose ancestral land and way of life would be devastated by their greed. And Napolitano said, This conduct is shameful and likely criminal. So pressure is increasing, and Ron Thiessen replied, here we go again with politics replacing reality, science, and facts from Northern Dynasty CEO Ron Thiessen. So those guys have been battling for a long time. And lest we forget, I mean, Brazil elected a new president, Lula, who vows for greener mining. You can read that on mining.com and northernminer.com. And finally, another headline, record central bank buying lifts global gold demand, according to WGC, the World Gold Council. And just the first paragraph here, central banks bought a record 399 tons of gold worth around $20 billion in the third quarter of 2022, the World Gold Council said in its latest quarterly report. And among the banks, the central banks that were buying were Turkey, Uzbekistan, Qatar, and India. Interesting group. Purchases of gold bars and coins also surged in Turkey to 46.8 tons in the quarter up more than 300% year-on-year as people bought gold to shield themselves from rampant inflation. And we have a quote from World Gold Council analyst Louise Street. Looking ahead, we anticipate central bank buying and retail investment to remain strong. We also expect to see jewelry demand continue to perform strongly in some regions such as India and Southeast Asia. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. 
And turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond. It is trading at 3.932%. So it has dropped off. And the U.K. 10-year is way down at 345 So down almost a percent, more than a percent off its recent highs here. So getting some respite here, both UK and the US 10-year bonds. Turning to our metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on November 1st, gold is trading at $1,648.60 per ounce. That is $7 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $19.69 per ounce. That is $0.81 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $944.29 per ounce. That is $30 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,871.07 per ounce. That is $94 lower than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading $0.06 higher at $3.48 per pound. Aluminum is trading three cents higher at dollar one per pound. Lead is unchanged at eighty-eight cents per pound, and nickel is thirty-two cents higher at ten dollars and nine cents per pound. Tin is down six cents at eight dollars and thirty cents per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at twenty-three dollars and twenty-six cents per pound, and zinc is four cents lower at one dollar and thirty-two cents per pound. Zooming out, looks like the best move was made by gold, silver and platinum, and palladium was down, and most industrial metals were basically kind of more or less status quo. I mean, six cents up on copper, three cents up on aluminum, a little bit higher on nickel, down on tin, so a bit of a mixed bag there. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have EY Canada's Theo Yamayogo, and he is Canada's mining and metal sector leader for EY Canada. He is a seasoned mining executive with experience and a reputation in mining operations and professional services. He is a trusted advisor in the mining business, mining engineering, and geology. He currently focuses on enabling and fostering business transformation and technology adoption across the industry to support core business excellence and enterprise growth. Prior to his consulting experience, Theo spent many years in mining operations, engineering consulting, and mining contracting services. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. It's full of practical advice for both larger companies and exploration companies on how they can improve their ESG policy and how they can also implement better digital transformation. With that, I hope you enjoy the conversation and I will see you on the other side. Ogo, who is joining us, and he is from EY Canada, and he is the Canada's mining and metal sector leader, and he is joining us today to talk about ESG and digitalization. Theo, welcome to the program. Thanks, Adrian. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So tell us, you know, ESG is obviously a huge topic. It's becoming increasingly political, but tell us about the roots of ESG. It used to be CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. Now it's ESG, Environmental Social Governance. What's changed? I think that the way we look at it 
from from the EUI perspective is that there's new stakeholders getting involved. Okay, so back in the day, you know, still in university when we start on with CSR, typically mining companies would deal with communities and create environments where they can collaborate with communities. But it was more of a, you know, open mind concept, discussing directly with communities and figure out what community needs so that we are on the same page. Then following that, we're seeing a lot of words like sustainability. That was like a department in the mining company, and they were thinking about, sometimes they think about sustainability of the operation, but they thinking about sustainability communities. And then we had tailing dams failures, and the tailing dam failures shone the light more on environment. Typically, when people say ESG, they talk about environment, most of the time they actually talk about tailings. And then in recent years, the financial sector started figuring out ways to actually hold people accountable to, you know, how to deal with environment communities. And we started hearing the word ESG. And the G, in recent time, you've heard of some of the proxy advisors come up and say that, hey, we need more diversity on boards, we need this and that. So it bundled into ESG, but it's, a, it's really typical human activities is to oversimplify. So easy to simplify it, but it's much more complex than, than just the three, the three word acronym. Very interesting. And that all rings true to me. So would you say that this issue is at the forefront of mining right now, as far as just general conversations? I mean, it seems like it has been for the last few years. I mean, would you, in your estimation, like how important is ESG now? Is it the topic? Is it declining in importance? How do you see it? Well, we just published our, our top 10 risk and opportunities report. It's another report that we do at EYN. It's been 15 years now. And um, ESG, geopolitics and climate change all came to the top. Because when you start unpacking ESG, it, it gets into areas where you have um, duplications, right? Because uh, if you're working on climate change, you're kind of working for ESG. Geopolitics has a lot to do with governance and society. So it starts to kind of merge. And, you know, I was talking to Randy Smallwood just before this session and uh, on a different um, on a conference on corporate purpose. And he, he actually mentioned that, well, ESG is actually just good business practices something that you do for your business to stay afloat and be ahead of the competition. So I wouldn't say that it's less, it's actually more heightened, but people are now more aware of the, you know, greenwashing and things like that. So they actually pay more attention. Last week in Calgary, we were supporting energy disruptors conference. And uh, one of the discussions that came up was that, well, if you actually think about the rating, you have to be really careful because you can be rated differently depending on, on where you are. And one of our clients this morning was telling me that, yeah, they have an issue with one particular rating agency because they couldn't understand what they were trying to say. So if you get into some misunderstanding, the rating can be misleading or you can rate one and then the other group takes a different type of information. So there's item awareness that ESG is not that simple. And that you need to pay attention that it's not greenwashing. You need to pay attention that, you know, you just don't get underrated because you didn't provide the information or they didn't understand what you're doing. And of course, you heard about the green bonds. 
uh, with, um, mm. you know, what we're hearing is like there's a mixed mix, um, appreciation of how that one is going. You know, there's a lot of ESG-focused funds that will have certain metrics. So, yeah, I think it's a new reality. And I believe that it's probably similar to when we came up with ASIC. People are going to be reporting, and then with time, it's going to get better. Fascinating. Now, would you say that there is a universal, are there universal guidelines for companies? Or to your point, is like, you know, some ratings agencies might feel one way. Like, how clear is it right now? And how easy is it for a company to comply to these rules? Or is it kind of a little too murky right now? What are you seeing? Uh, what we're seeing is uh, there's twofold. So there's um, the association approach. Uh, so if you think about uh, Mac, for example, in Canada with uh, TSM, uh, that's an approach. And then our framework, like they like to call it. If you think about the World Gold Council with the Responsible Gold Mining Principle or ICMM with basically Responsible Mining Principles, you can think about the copper mark. So there are some guiding principles on what's the best thing to do and they go by different areas. And then there are some certification that people get on particular areas. Um, so that one is somewhat quite transparent because it's usually run by mining companies that actually sit together and try to figure out a way forward. The ratings, it's still not clear which rating is better than which one. And there's also a lot of like between these uh, uh, rating uh, companies, especially the ones that are coming from the traditional financial services. And we are part of the big four firms that are basically, you know, working alongside the ACC and the OAC to kind of see if there's some sort of a framework that can come out that actually make it simple because it'll be for the listed companies in these, in these especially in North America. But one concerns that I've heard from certain companies, especially listed companies, is that we have more private companies than listed companies in the mining sector. And that if we only stick to the listed company being regulated, well, then the private companies may actually have more damage than the listed companies. So there's a balance on going forward. But the great news is that everyone wants to do the right thing. And this really this is really what the founding principle is, right? If you want to do the right thing, we may get a different speed, but at least we are aligned that this is something that we need to do as a sector, especially if we want to make sure that the metals, especially the, you know, the super metals we're trying to get from the earth to supply our energy transition, we need them to be as clean as possible with the lowest carbon footprint so that the consumers feel like at least they're participating also in, in uh, energy transition. Yeah, exactly. It's like the no one wants to return to the corporate raider sort of mentality, profit at all costs of the 1980s, uh, to your point. In a sense, we want, you know, I think everybody, to your point, include companies and investors, everyone wants a good corporate citizen, you know, working. So, then tell me about the investment side, because, I mean, you hear kind of various things in financial media, whether it's oil companies or mining companies, about how maybe it's harder to get investment or how, you know, some maybe pension plans don't want to invest. And 
again, it seems like there's not really clear rules, but tell me the investment side of things. How hard is it for, say, a mining or an oil company to get investment these days? Um, our clients, from the juniors to the seniors, are telling us that it's really a tough world for investment. Um, as, um, again, human race type activities, we tend to react first, you know, everybody is like a, so early on when you start hearing about, you know, COP26 and COP27 coming, uh, you start hearing like Larry wrote this paper about, you know, investing green. Most investors then just say, well, we're not going to do fossil fuel anymore. Now, that's an overbundling of the sector into fossil fuel. Uh, and then most people don't understand mining, so they just figured if it's coming from the earth, we're not going to do it. So there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. There's also a lot of misunderstanding around the history of mining, you know, how far we've come, all the great things we've done, not only for society, but also just becoming better corporate citizen over the years. That basically doesn't get understood properly. And then there's the alternative ways to invest the money. Uh, I mean, if you think of it, um, and I remember David Arquell talking about this at one of the EY uh, mining days years ago, the time it takes to get a mine is, is what, 10 years, 15, if, if you're not too lucky with uh, regulations. So if you think about that, and you and I, you know, let's say we're just normal citizens, and then uh, somebody says, hey, you need to invest in mining company, but you know, they're not gonna get the mine running before 10, 15 years. You may just turn around and put it in something that is like a startup or some sort of something that gets you the money quickly. So there's a competition for the money. It doesn't mean that we need to follow that. In my mind, um, as somebody that grew up in the mining sector, I always feel like we also need to morph with the, with the reality. We need to get a new set of investors that we haven't originally tapped into. And, and to me, that's, that's what's going to be key. But at this point, it's still tough to raise money. I talked to the CEO of um, Lomico Metal Belinda not long ago, and uh, they're a junior company, and it's tough. I mean, they, they were on the show yesterday, right? On the... I just interviewed her. Uh, she's going to be on the next week's uh, podcast. And yeah, it sounded like it was challenging a lot of the things she's dealing with. Which kind of brings me to kind of one of my last or second last question on the ESG front, which is you're on the front lines. You see kind of you grew up in the mining industry, you're saying, and you are work for EYs. So we could call you an expert. I mean, what needs to be done in your opinion? Do we need clear guidelines? Like what's the prescription? I think ESG is going to be a bit like how we grew, how we grew up with health and safety. There's a lot of activities we do in the sector that, most of the people that believe they know ESG or believe they're creating ratings, they don't understand it. I, I listened to a, a rating agency this morning and some somebody very senior there, and I was like, well, obviously you never did mind planning in your life. You don't really understand it. And, and because they oversimplify things. So I think that, you know, as a professional engineer, I understand this idea of you self-regulate and you get better because the public doesn't really get what you're talking about. So that's how I see us as an industry dealing with the ESG imperatives because they're not really defined. So we need to help define them and we need to communicate. We always assume as a sector that, oh yeah, people understand this is important. No, people don't. 
people don't. People don't understand the essential role of mining and metals. And most of the time we say mining and we forget that actually all the metals have to come from it. Most of the time we segregate the metals, like uh, the smelters from the mining, and it makes no sense. Most smelters are owned by mining companies. So I believe that that's going to be the first one is as an industry. I love when I see those principles being signed off. I love when I see that uh, TSM and ICMM kind of talk to each other and update the, the principles accordingly. We need to think about it as a, as, as a sector and uh, we need to tell the story. We don't need to make movies, which is a good idea too, but we need people to come out and tell the story and explain why we do what we do. Well, that's a really fascinating point you bring up about movies, because I feel like a lot of the, and maybe it's just my sense, that a lot of the kind of pushback against the mining industry, and some of it fair, uh, but is from a lot of movies that people are watching. And it's almost like, to your point, we almost need some movies or something like, it sounds like education is kind of what's required here so that people realize, and we can't assume as you say, we can't assume that people understand that mining is what's going to deliver us from fossil fuels. Yeah, that's, that's uh, I mean, yeah, we should probably think about a movie, at least some sort of cartoon, you know, something better than obviously. Yeah, yeah. no, that's hilarious. Okay, and actually one very quick point, because we have to move on to our second uh, topic of digital transformation, but Anglo-American put out those sustainability bonds, and you kind of alluded to them earlier, do you think that's an effective tool or is that just kind of, uh, I don't know, more show than anything? What's your take on that? Well, Anglo is a major client of EY, and I can tell you that um, they have done a lot of great things as a leader in the sector. And like I said before, at this point in time, we don't know what the answer is. So we should let everybody actually just go ahead and test something that they you know, they basically reviewed internally and believe it will work because we're not, we're not going to know what are the answers. And, you know, it's going to be interesting when we talk about digital transformation. We need more creativity until we figure out what is the dominant design. And the same, same way, I mean, if you think about uh, how we have phones and stuff like that, you're not going to know which one is going to be a dominant design. So you need to let the creativity shine. And, and I respect what Anglo is coming up with as an option because this may be how things will go in the future. So it's good that they try. Same with the hydrogen truck, right? They also tried that. And that may be the future. We don't know yet. Excellent. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, a lot of just trying stuff out uh, and see what works really. So moving on to digital transformation here. Uh, this is something that companies big and small have to face. One kind of assumes, probably wrongly, that uh, all the companies have figured this out by now. But if they haven't, what should they do? How do you set a roadmap to digital transformation? It sounds like a huge, such a big topic that it's where to begin. So what do you do? You work for EY. Help us out. So actually, as I think about digital transformation, uh, way before it was a big deal. And uh, the reason is that I always felt that whatever we're doing in our homes, we should be doing the similar things in our workplace. This is really my philosophy. Um, I worked previously for Dundee Precious Metal. We tried a lot of great things at Dundee and, and they continue to do it. And uh, 
for all our clients that we work with, it falls down to simple things like, are you really digital? Like, are you trying to become digital or are you basically going to be digital? And uh, people that try to become digital will take longer, but if you want to be digital, you just, to me, you look at what you do at work and then you compare it to what you do at home. Uh, the easiest, I, and I was also a CIM distinguished lecturer for one year talking about digital transversity industry 4.0 across the country. And my easy example always been the, your bank uh, statement. Okay, uh, I remember the days when the bank statement basically waited at the end of the month and it'll come like five, seven days after the month and, and then you didn't look at it then you discover what you're doing with your bank, right? Because I don't know if you remember, but when you went to the, to the I do, I do, yeah, yeah, went to the bank and you, you know, they'll only show you something on the screen, and you still have to wait at the end of the month, right? But we don't do that anymore. So today, when you want to see, or I mean, some people have alerts, but you can just log on the app and you can see what's going on. You can even see a transaction you did like a minute ago, right? So usually I ask people, so if that's the case, why is it that in the mines, we actually still have month-end reports that we close just like the bank reports that we used to have 20 years ago? And these are the, the little steps that people should think about because it's easy for people to actually, it's easy that people, this kind of situation resonates with people, right? Because they'll say, yeah, why, why am I walking around with paper? I don't really use paper in my house. So that's an example. I like to talk about supply chain and tracking. Uh, you know, like uh, get something on FedEx, you know where the truck is and everything like that. And maybe what you got on FedEx is a book, right? But then you, you're getting a massive engine that's coming from China and you have no idea where it is. It's not right. <laughs> I don't know where the book is. I should know where the big massive thing is coming from. So to me, that's the early... That's like the first steps of digital is, is asking ourselves, what are we doing in our company that is very archaic? Because that's also what's creating us a problem on, on getting like new blood of, in the workforce. Because the new generation will not understand that. Why am I looking at a paper at the mountain? Why am I not knowing where the engine is and things like that? So that's the first step that we usually talk to clients about. The second one is really picking the areas where you want to be good. And my example mm -hmm. to follow has been that if you look at Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Samsung, all of the technology players I can name, Microsoft, they are all good in their own ways. They actually not, they don't need to copy each other. They're just doing different things. So digital transformation is a bunch of pathways. The company needs to pick, okay, which pathway are we going to be? Which one do we want to be known for? And by picking that, then you can actually lay out a roadmap accordingly. Rather than running to every conference and buying the next big thing and testing this and running there, it confuses the hell out of the workforce because they don't know what is the objective. What's the purpose of the transformation? So that's usually what we talk to clients about. Some clients are very good at it. They're on different phases of digital transformation. Others are still to start, but again, you gotta come up with a business case. We're good at finance and business cases before things get approved by board. So you gotta come up with a business case for every one of these. So if we had to boil it down, is digital transformation 
is it about efficiency at the end of the day well it'll be it'll be sad if um, if we don't get productivity uplift from digital transformation to me that's the fundamental piece it's really making sure that there's a business case for something if you only focus on costs yeah it's great but you may actually lose on growth and productivity but sometimes costs can get you down to making the same things all the time rather than actually look at the opportunities to change things and and then be more productive so since 2014 ey always been clear that productivity uplift should be the key driver of digital transformation nowadays i think in top of productivity uh, uplift we can add some of the esg imperatives because you may actually have to information so that you know what's going on with your data so that you actually have some sort of transparency when it comes to like i don't know piezometers numbers or tailing a water flow and things like that so you may actually do this transformation for eg purposes but along the way you'll get the productivity anyway because if you do it for eg purposes means that at this point your people are basically working over time to get the data together and they're not happy that is fascinating so almost full circle here like if to kind of achieve your esg goals digital transformation might be essential to your point maybe it's so much of this say ESG business is about data and just about providing data to people so that they can see okay you are measuring you know xyz in a tailings dam or whatever the case may be yeah would you agree yeah yeah what a usage for example you can have a live i mean we have it with the water meters now right like uh, you can log on utility company you can see how much water you're consuming and then you can put your sprinkler on and you can see actually it's real or not i, I do these tests just for fun once in a while at my house but what are you saying <laughs> so having what it means everywhere having them roll the data into some sort of dashboard so that the environment team can actually see how much water we're consuming and then comparing that to you know what products are we getting out so then you have a input output situation and you can figure out the productivity right there you can think about um automating the monitoring of your power utilization uh making sure that if you have lights that are not being used i i actually heard this one in sweden from um i believe it was boliden this the, the guy was an electrical engineer there and he said something really fundamental he said he put a picture and said that they reduce power consumption by 10% of 50 because I don't remember the number. And then he asked the audience what do you think we did and people came up with these big ideas whatever. All they did was change all the lights to led lights and put motion detector. Incredible. So, yeah, so these simple solutions, hey, uh it's like the things that we're not even thinking about half the time. And there's a profound lesson there. Now, as far as there's a lot of explorers, I mean, we're the northern miner, we cover a lot of, you know, exploration companies what can they do like do you have any practical advice i mean some of them are probably watching right now like what should they be doing that they might not be doing in your estimation in one of our clients actually is contemplating just automating data and data management because when you're at the exploration level there's a lot of data and by the time you go into production you're going to lose most of it trying to figure it out so 
think about every meetings you're having with different councils in the communities. How do you structure that data? How do you make it meaningful for others? How do you how do you collect the input in a way? Think about all your environmental footprint mapping. Where's that data? Is it on a electronic platform somewhere where you can run machine learning on it? Like, uh, and then think about modeling. Uh, historically, we model man's tailings and everything, you know, using like static, basically uh, platforms. Like we'll print the old mine design on the paper and print, do things like that. But, you know, we have a alliance partner in South Africa and they actually, I think they call BSC Corporation. They actually will model your mind in 3D and people can don goggles and watch what it looks like. So it's like a, a VR of your mind rather than a bunch of slides and going through it. So this is at the exploration level. The final things I'll say about exploration companies is that we haven't figured out smart targeting yet. I know Goldspot is doing some stuff, but there's more things to be done in smart targeting, uh, making sure we don't just treat every hole we design, but we're actually able to pivot, you know, some sort of like um, uh, real options so that if I'm drilling hole number two, I may not need to do load number three. I can skip it because all number just give my information that says skip all number three. Typically, when, when I see exploration companies say that, oh, we plan to drill 10,000 meters or 10,000 meters, I'm like, well, did you need to drill those or did you just go blind and say, I'm going to drill it? So how do I use technology and machine learning to reduce that? Or on-the-spot data management to do that? And there's a lot of players in that space Experience company needs to just pick which one they're going to work with and also, again, pick which pathway they want to be known for. What an excellent discussion. You guys tackled all the big themes there. And Theo, we thank you so much for taking the time and providing all of that insight. You're going to have us all going away thinking about how we can execute on some of this advice going forward. Wonderful to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'd like to thank Theo Yameogo, EY Canada's mining and metal sector leader, for joining us at the Global Mining Symposium. It was a fascinating discussion, I thought. I asked him some pretty blunt questions, which he answered quite elaborately. So thank you for the insights, Mr. Yameogo. And if you're looking for more information on the Canadian Mining Symposium and how to register as an investor, go to events.northernminer.com and you can learn all about the speakers, the agenda, the venue. And with that, if you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.